You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Rory Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, it's an IR Magazine research special as we present findings from reports into roadshow trends, global IR practice, and award winners in Southeast Asia and Greater China. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast. With me this week is Condice de Montpetit and Garnet Roach. Morning, guys. Good morning, Laurie. And we're, as I previously mentioned, presenting a rundown of some of the latest stats and interesting bits from uh, some of the IR Magazine research that's come out recently. Um, it's a busy time of year, really, because we've been putting the finishing touches to most of the most anticipated bodies of research, I think you can call them. I think at some point or another, we've all had to tackle the enormous data spreadsheets involved. Uh, all of our data is picked from a huge base of investor relations officers, investors and analysts alike. Um, not great news for us authors, but good news for readers, as each provides an accurate snapshot of exactly what the investment community thinks about, for example, how best to tackle roadshows. Condice, I think you've looked a bit more closely in this area, and particularly about what small cap CEOs are doing. Yes, well, according to our latest Global Roadshow Report, sponsored by Bank of America Merrill Lynch, 71% of small cap CEOs and 59% of CFOs take part in company roadshows. And that's the, the highest number across different cap sizes, where the average is 46 and 55% respectively. So apart from the highly engaging small cap CEO, uh, we can see that it's mainly the CFOs who are um, uh, hitting the road. And the most lazy finance directors can be found at... Da, da, da. <laughs> mega caps and Asian firms with an attendance rate of 44 and 46% respectively. So that's um, still relatively not too bad. So a bit, a bit lazy, but not that much. And how does the picture pan out when looking globally, you know, region to region? What are the differences there? Well, the study reveals that uh, North American CEOs attend a, a majority of roadshows, and those in Europe participate in only 38% of events and 33% for Asians. But then again, in North America, a large number of roadshows are domestic. So, of course, that makes them a lot easier to attend. And what about IROs themselves? IROs have um, quite a lot of responsibility to bear because um, they, well, they take part in all those, those trips with the CEOs and CFOs, but um, they're also sent out to travel solo, uh, especially at mega caps where one third of roadshows are IRO only. And we can see that uh, the smaller the cap size, the less frequently the IRO will attend um, investor meetings alone. It's going to be one quarter for large caps, then one fifth for the mid caps, and only 11% for small caps. So does that mean that uh, maybe small caps uh, and, and micro caps do not have the means to hire the, the high-profile, high-flying IRO that can be sent on the road alone? Do you think that's what it is? You need, you need a self-starting IRO who, can, who has the charisma to, to dazzle a roadshow alone rather than a whole team. The self-starter IRO, that, that's a great idea for mm. a feature. Maybe it'll be coming up soon. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I wonder how much budget plays into it, because, like you mentioned earlier, because presumably that's a, a large differentiator in how much you've got to spend on being able to go on the road, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, obviously, the smaller the company, the less money they're going to be able to divert into investor relations. Yeah, well, when you see the, the um, salary reports and some mega cap, cap IROs are paid, what, half a million? So, yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> they can travel alone for that price. I'll go anywhere for that price. <laughs> Garnet Roach, not a fussy roadshow traveller. But I believe, Garnet, you have uh, more of a handle on uh, global practice of investigations thanks to a very snazzy new report. Not quite as snazzy as the old reports that, uh, you know, I used to write, <laughs> but still pretty nice, Laurie. I'll give it to you. It's quite good. We should mention at this point that I, I took over writing it this year from Garnet, who's done a bang-up job in previous years. And it does look fantastic, Laurie. I'll Nothing to do with to me, everything to do with our <laughs> art department, I think. But yes, what are, what, what are the key findings there? 
And so obviously every year the uh, Global Practice Report is packed full of interesting global IR stats, regional figures and sector breakdowns as well. But something that's particularly interesting this year is that 2015 marks the fifth year that we've run this research, which means that we can look at how the IR role has changed since 2011. And what you see is that both team size and budgets are down on 2011 figures, despite the global average budget actually shooting up by $50,000 between 2014 and 2015. In fact, though, other than this recent turnaround, the amount of money IR teams have to spend has been steadily decreasing year on year since 2011. And how does that look on a regional level? Well, this is reflected across the three regions that we look at each year um, for this report, which are North America, Europe and Asia, where budgets decreased steadily between 2011 and 2014 before recovering this year. And of those regions, European budgets have actually come out on top for the first time this year. Actually, it's usually North American IR departments that enjoy the biggest budgets, while those in Asia, however, have consistently operated on just over half their Western counterparts. And you mentioned IR team size as well. How's that changed? Yeah, so IR team sizes are down as well. Um, When it comes to the global IR team, a whole IRO has been shaved off in the last five years. So uh, (laughs) Would want to be that guy. (laughs) No, you don't want to be that guy. In 2011, the average IR department had 3.7 people, which is down to 2.6 today. What could that mean for IR workloads? Presumably you're going to have a a lot of very overworked IROs. Well, I think it's fair to say that IROs have more to do than ever before. Despite these budget cuts and fewer colleagues to share the workload, the average IR team has been more active on many levels, particularly when it comes to those one-on-one investor meetings that Condice mentioned. So not counting a bit of a blip in 2012, IR teams across the globe have consistently ramped up the number of one-on-one meetings from 176 five years ago to 214 today. Not only have they increased the number of meetings, but more of these are actually now IR only. Back in 2011, more than half of one-on-ones, or 53%, had the C-suite in attendance, but that's now down to 44% this year. How interesting. So IR teams seem to have fewer resources, less manpower, and more meetings to do on their own than they have done in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for anybody that wants to find out a bit more about how the 2015 IR landscape differs from that scene in 2011 um, and for more of a deeper dive into the wider investor relations practice this year you can check out the global investor relations practice report 2015 which is available on the website now yes absolutely you can and something else that's just recently been put up on the website is a report from the IR magazine awards in Greater China and Southeast Asia unfortunately none of us got to attend this year but we saw some of the photos from the event it looked incredible but and it saw the unveiling not only of the Greater China top 30 and Southeast Asia top 25 companies for IR but of course the full award standings for firms and individuals in both regions first in Hong Kong um, and at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel last week three companies topped the bill with three trophies to their name Um, TCL Communication Technology Holdings was one, who are a Shenzhen-based mobile and internet service provider, and they took home the top award for mid-cap companies and for the best IR by a mainland Chinese company, while its IR director, Kenneth Lau, was named the best IR at a small or mid-cap firm. There are also three trophies for Kerry Logistics Network, uh, who, was the, who was the joint winner of the award for most progress in IR, along with Pax Global Technology. Kerry was also named the best company in Hong Kong and the best in the industrial sector. Um, scooping the Grand Prix for the best overall IR at large cap firms, meanwhile, was familiar face Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. They were also named the best Taiwanese company and the best in the technology sector. There are two titles for a couple more companies. Uh, China Telecom, another regular winner at the awards, whose IROs Lisa Lai and Ivan Wong shared the trophy for best IR professionals. Far East Consortium International and the aforementioned Pax Global Technology, two trophies for those three. 
And what about over in Southeast Asia? Well, over there, there were two companies who really led the way, and they both won four awards apiece. Uh, Singapore's DBS Bank, again, who are a familiar winner in, in previous years, they held on to the Grand Prix for best overall IRA large cap company for a further year, um, as well as awards for the best in financial sector and the best in sustainability practice. Equaling DBS's tally was Metro Pacific Investments Corporation. They were the best Southeast Asian mid-cap company for IR, and the Philippines-based utilities firm also picked up best in country and best in sector awards, while their IR director, Albert Polito, was named the best professional. Other big winners on the night were the Universal Rabina Corporation and IHH Healthcare. Uh, they both took home two IR magazine trophies, as did real estate company Capitaland. Uh, there was quite interesting. The firm's new head of IR, Rihua Chang, was named the best IRO at a large cap firm, while their former head of IR, Harold Wu, was also recognised with a Lifetime Achievement Award. So, you know, incoming oh, and outcoming. Good night for them. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, Rihua was uh, apparently successful in, in uh, filling those Wu shoes. Oh, very good. <laughs> And we should say congratulations to everyone who took home a very coveted IR Magazine trophy on the evening. And a reminder that to find out more information, you can consult the IR Magazine Investor Perception Studies for both regions. Uh, they'll be published in the very near future on the website and will include a full rundown of both regional rankings. That's the Greater China Top 30 and Southeast Asia Top 25 companies. As a little taster, you can uh, read my article on the, the website that um, reveals that Hong Kong companies are apparently viewed as the best uh, in IR in the region. Oh, fantastic. You can check check alongside the Investor Perception Study to see if that remains the case. For more information about that and an extensive range of our research reports, including the 2015 editions of the Global Roadshow Report and Global Practice Report, as Condice and Garnet both talked about earlier, uh, you can check our website, particularly at www.irmagazine.com forward slash research. That's where all our latest research reports and Investor Perception Studies will be published first. And you can keep an eye on our Twitter at IR Magazine to keep abreast of any of the latest editions. That's all we have time for this week. But thanks, Garnet and Condice, for talking us through the figures. Thank, Thank you, Larry. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.